0: Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hey friends, today we've got on the podcast Erwin McManus, author, pastor, founding pastor of the Mosaic Church in LA. He's got a new book called The Last Arrow. Uh, it's a good book. And big shout out to our friend Eric Robinson, who not only made this podcast happen during the Hills Men's Conference, but also let us use his office. So thanks, Eric, for letting us use your office to record this during a great event, the Hills Men's Conference. And let me tell you about another great event. On May 1st through May 4th, it is the 75th Annual Pepperdine Bible Lectures. The theme is the Spirit-Filled People of God. And now the event is known by the name Harbor. So Harbor 2018 is going to have some great guests, including Brian Zahn. We've talked about BZ's prayer school on this podcast before with BZ, and he's actually doing one of those the day, uh, Tuesday the 1st, the in Malibu. So you need to come for that, if nothing else. But there's also going to be sessions by Christine Kane from Hillsong. Rick Ashley is doing the opening session Uh, Leonard Allen Scott McKnight uh, Dan Rodriguez will be there Uh, Jonathan Storm and I are actually going to be tag teaming our Christians Make the Best Atheist content and then at the end of the week we will vote and see who did the best job with that content me or Jonathan I think we all know who's going to win that but you know might as well vote on it. Anyway, uh, that's May 1st through May 4th in Malibu, California. The Pepperdine Bible Lecture 75th Annual Event. It is Harbor 2018. Hope to see you there. And now on to Erwin McManus. We're just in the middle of a conversation, and I just hit record because we're missing too much good stuff for the podcast. So we're talking about uh, Christians who are writers versus people who write Christian books. Fascinating conversation. Here it is. Um, I always thought the difference of a pastor who writes and a writer who's a pastor is that like the pastor who writes is just taking old sermons and just put them on a piece of paper. How would you differentiate that? Is it more than that?
1: Well, I don't know um, if that's necessarily the distinction because um, most sermons aren't unique. So if you take sermons and turn them into books if you're taking sermons that are not unique, then you have books that are not unique. And, you know, so the reality is that most preaching is seen as valid or orthodox if you're repeating what's been said a thousand times before. Yeah. And then you're just filtering it through a new personality, whoever the, mm-hmm. uh, the pastor is. And, uh, and so, you know, most preaching doesn't give you a new way of seeing the world. It reinforces faith. It re-, re encourages your faith. So I don't put them in the same category. I think even preaching can be an art. Yeah. You know. So I, for me, um, I don't want to inspire people. I want to devastate the way they see reality. I mean, I think there's a difference. Yeah. And uh, if I felt like, and I don't mean this um, as it isn't right for other people, but if I felt my role in life was simply to communicate in an inspiring way what everyone already believes, I would never preach again. Hmm. It just isn't what I would give my life to. I would, find, I would go find something that I could do that would bring a unique perspective on the world.
0: Because hmm. the sermons, yeah. from my experience as being a pastor for a few years now, is that the sermons most people like are the ones that tell them what they already think.
1: If you're preaching to Christians, yeah.
0: You think So if you're preaching to non-Christians... They don't have that same.
1: That's why they're not listening, and that's why people say things like, oh, "I've already been to church," and because they realize that all they're hearing is the same iteration, mm-hmm. the same thing over and over again, and 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 that's I think that's a part of the problem is that people aren't going to suddenly accept something when they hear it for the thousandth time the same way. Yeah, you know, I, I like this past Easter, in my talk was on fractals, and. Um, I remember years ago, um, my wife came and said, what are you going to talk about this Easter? And, and I said, I'm going to speak on beauty. And she goes, how can you not speak on the resurrection? I said, you know, 90% of people go to church one time a year, it's Easter. And they hear the same message every Easter. And so they think all we do is preach the exact same thing every time. And, and so they feel like we are incapable of seeing life from a new perspective. Mm-hmm. And so I try really to... Um, to help people find truth through perspectives that are unexpected.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I had uh, the drummer for the band Jimmy Eat World, mm-hmm. uh, Zach Lynn, mm-hmm. and Zach's good friends with, uh, with Rob, Rob Bell. And he was on the podcast two years ago, and he made a comment that stuck with me. And he said, we don't go to church to hear new things. We go to church to be reminded of what we already believe. And so you're talking about two different orientations for church of – like, insiders go to be reminded of why they are insiders. Right. But outsiders need something out. Do you think insiders need to hear hear it as like a brand new message from a new perspective?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think that's why the church is dying and why people don't change. And it's uh, because they go to places that reinforces their already held beliefs. And because of that, they remain unchanged. You cannot change if you don't see the world or see yourself differently. Mm-hmm. So I think part of the problem is that um, preaching that doesn't actually reach unbelievers doesn't actually reach believers we just think it does yeah, so,
0: yeah. that's fascinating w- why do you think most of us preach the same stuff that people already know and they've already heard why don't we step out and talk I about I don't f-
1: really like speaking on behalf of everyone else okay what do you think se- why, <laughs> do you well, because I wouldn't <clears throat> want someone speaking on my behalf Fair. what do you,
0: you know? think attention that you feel maybe you don't have that voice in your head you've just Killed that voice. Which voice? The voice that says, just preach whatever everyone
1: already thinks. See, that's the thing is, I never had that voice. You never had it? You know, it's an outside voice for me. Like when people would ask me early on, what do you do to see the world differently? I would respond, you don't really understand. I have to work hard to see the world the same. And I would try really hard to see the world the same because I wanted to fit in. I wanted to belong. I mean, when I became a follower of Christ uh, in college, um, I didn't know I saw the world differently. It was only as I tried to engage into the faith and be around people of faith and, and um, that I began realizing that I kept accidentally violating the way they saw reality. and It felt a lot like someone saying the world is round and everybody's saying it's flat, don't you know? That's what the Bible says. And I kept going, show me where in the Bible it says the world is flat. Mm-hmm. And they go, just to question that is to question the sovereignty of God. And I realized, oh, it's not the answers that are sacred. It's even the questions that are sacred. You're just not allowed to ask them.
0: Yeah. That's fascinating. Okay, I want to talk about your new book. Can we transition to The Last Arrow? Talk
1: about anything you want. Okay.
0: (laughs) This is fascinating. Okay. There's a story you tell in The Last serum of taking your son Aaron when he's probably 15, 16-ish to meet your father, my ma- stepdad. The you know. man that you called father. Mm-hmm. Like, he came in your life when you were two, is that no, right? No, I
1: don't really know how old it was when it came to my life.
0: Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay, but there's a falling out, uh, like a real heartbreaking story. He leaves, clips you with this car on the way out, mm-hmm. and then you don't see him for years. Right. Your son's born, he becomes a teenager, wants to meet your stepdad. And I, I hear the story of him saying, You were just average your brother older brother Mm -hmm. was the exceptional one and that like that was heartbreaking to hear and then you took it one level deeper and my oldest daughter is five or six years six or seven years younger than aaron was at the time and you said a line that got to my heart where it wasn't that your stepdad said you're average but he said it in front of your son and that got you and i would hate for my daughter to hear that when someone hears that kind of stuff from someone who had such an important, had a large space of your adolescence, what does that do to you?
1: Well, I think I um, kind of unwrapped that in that what really struck me was that it was true. It was not that he said it, it was that it was actually an honest assessment of reality. And, and I, you know, I remember when I was a kid, he would say, man, if, if your brother just had your, your determination and you had his talent. And that was his way of trying to say something positive, right? And mm-hmm. and uh, and even ironically, just recently, over um, uh, just a few months ago, my mom flew out, and and she was, you know, just reminiscing, and she goes, "I'm so sorry for the way we treated you." She was, she goes, "I'm just so so sorry." She goes, "We just thought you were stupid," and, and I thought this is great. <laughs> Thanks, this is mom. The most, this is the most empathetic moment I can get right now. Mm-hmm. And and she said it like three or four times. We just thought you were stupid. We didn't know any better, and. Um, and And I realized that that one the perspective a person comes in relationship to you is really significant you know mm-hmm. and, and it, it did mark me like it was um I mean our identities are formed in the sphere of those who in, who matter to us most yep. and uh and so you know my mom and stepdad were the people who shaped my identity a great deal, uh, my brother, my grandparents you know and and, um, and so really, for a huge part of my life, I saw myself through the lens of who they were. Yeah. And, uh, and that was probably the most significant thing. you know. But ironically, when my, when, when my son heard my stepdad say he was average, I wasn't upset that my son was hearing that I was average. Um, actually, I think it's very helpful to my son. Because if, if I've accomplished anything meaningful in my life, I want my son to know, that I didn't start with what people thought was extraordinary raw material. Mm-hmm. See, I want him to know that he has no limit based on what other people say about him. If he doesn't feel like he's talented enough or gifted enough or uh, or whatever it may be, I want him to know that um, that resource isn't limited and it doesn't matter what other people say about you. It doesn't matter even if you feel like you're inadequate. Um, eventually, hard work is mistaken for talent and mm-hmm. eventually like determination is perceived as genius and and uh, it's, and you know, my mom's like, feedback mechanism would be, uh, we thought you were stupid. We didn't know you were a genius, and, um, and I, neither one of those are probably accurate. Mm-hmm. You know, in some ways, it doesn't really matter. What matters is what limitations you accept on your life, yeah. And which ones you refuse to let limit you. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I'm really, ironically, really grateful because my assessment of like human. Uh, capacity is that people who base their future on their talent um, usually are less resilient than people who base their future on their character or their hard work or their determination. Because then you're not, you're, you're not handcuffed to your talent. Because mm-hmm. what happens the moment someone more talented Jew walks in? Yeah. You know, it devastates your worldview. And you know, what happens when you fail, when something doesn't come together the way you want? You, you have to explain your world differently. And, and research has actually shown that people who have an extraordinarily high view of themselves are usually low risk takers and do not take personal responsibility for failure Yeah. and, and so you know I, I look back and I go God has an amazing way of taking even very negative environments and doing something really positive from your life uh, yeah and actually what made me sad was that this person that I genuinely believed had affection for me and um, that's that was the best he could come up with. That's what he felt he should say. Mm-hmm. So I was almost more sad that this is what he thought I should use this moment for. And, um, I mean, if you have one moment with a human being that has any value for, you know, you have any value for, what do you want to leave them with? Yeah. You know, what, What? because what, our words are our gifts or curses in people's lives. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was just a great reminder um, that I cannot live my life defined by what other people say about me. Yeah, I have to rise above that, and that's a part of the fun of life. I love, I love being the underdog, hmm. and I love being underestimated because uh, it just gives me endless space to achieve what no one ever believed they could.
0: Do you still see yourself as an underdog?
1: Always. Absolutely. No question about it. Really? Oh, yeah.
0: But, I mean, you've, you have quite a few skins on the wall, like things have come pretty well for you in a lot of areas, but you always hold on to that initial voice um, or the hmm. sense that you're here on hard work and others have talent and that differentiates you?
1: Oh, um, yeah, I, I just, uh, yeah, I, I like being the underdog. dog. I think that um, I'm okay. I'm an immigrant, you know, English was my second language. Okay. Um, my grandparents raised me the first few years of my life. I never knew my real father. I think it's important to be the underdog for me because there are people out there who don't believe that they're, that they have a future, Mm -hmm. that they don't know, they don't believe that they can overcome what they've been through. And, um, and even if you've worked really hard, but you, you just, for whatever reason, you started on third base rather than on yeah. you know, first base. Mm-hmm. People will look at you and go, "Yeah, but you know, you were on third base, right? Your parents were wealthy. Your parents were educated. You mm-hmm. grew up in a great neighborhood. You're white, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, in yeah. America. Whatever it That's is. That's true. And and people may actually discount how hard you worked. You may go, well, "You know, my parents were educated, and I did come up in wealth, and I did start on third base. But you don't know how hard I worked. Yeah. You know. And and so I get the wonderful advantage. See, I see it as an advantage of going. Um, I didn't even start up. I didn't start on plate. I was on yeah. the bench. No one even wanted to put me in the game. There were so many injuries they finally had to put me in. Yeah. You know? And uh, and, and if God can do this with me, then he can do this with you.
0: Okay. So Malcolm Gladwell talked about this, like, three-generation effect that – or a process that happened over and over again where people would immigrate to the United States. Their Their kids would have – uh, decent jobs, they would be manager-level people, mm-hmm. and then their grandkids would have this great work ethic, and they would have this tremendous worldly success because this third tier, of they saw their parents hustle, they saw them work hard, and now they had opportunity and a work ethic, and so they had so much success. But what happens to the generation after that? Because you came up, your your mom came over when you... Uh, Pan Am as a flight stewardess, is that the stewardess, right? Stewardess, yeah. Yeah. And she comes over, you come over as... A couple of years old, three or four? Maybe four or five, yeah. Okay. And you hustle. You've had a great deal of success. How do you instill that in your kids when they see, in some ways, are they on third base when they were born? Mm-hmm. How do you replicate your experience to give them that hard work?
1: Yeah, well, when Aaron was born, um, we were working with Urban Poor. All of his friends didn't speak English. Mm-hmm. Um, no one he spent his life with um, had parents that were not on welfare. So I don't know if he would say he was born on third base. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) uh, I think he got to run the bases with us. Good. You know, and um, and so it was a little different. But they certainly, um, but I've worked really hard to try to give them every advantage that Mm -hmm. they can have in life. Um, And I think that's a terrible burden to to bear. You know, the truth is that no matter where you start, um, it can be an incredible burden. Yeah. Because if you are the son of someone who's been, relatively successful or has a level of Mm -hmm. of um celebrity or fame or whatever it may be that's that's a burden to bear because everyone starts looking at you through the template of your father Mm -hmm. and uh and so i you know i I wouldn't wish what aaron has had to go through on anyone i mean i um people disagreed with my theology um there were people who decided they were going to kill me he was probably 15 16 years old websites were put up hourglass was put up of the moment they're going to assassinate me and that's when my son said, You know, if Christians want to kill my dad, I'm out. I don't want to have anything to do with this faith. Hmm. Uh, every day when he was in college, uh, professors would send students to his room to, and to confront him and say, How can you, you know, even be a McManus? Your dad's a heretic. He's sending people to hell. He had to deal with it every single day of his life. Hmm. So I didn't have to deal with that, you know, he and, did. and yeah. he did. So I, I feel like um, the burden he had to carry was greater than the one I had to carry, mm-hmm. and there were no expectations on my life, and there have been huge expectations in his life, and no one hated me because of what my parents did, but people have hated him because of what his father did. So if anything, he's had to carry a pretty heavy burden. Yeah, you know, and so I have immense respect for him as a human being.
0: Is that why you stepped away from doing a lot of press?
1: After Artisan Soul? Well, no, it was before Artisan Soul. I, I didn't write a book for six years. I stopped speaking at conferences. I I'd never planned to come back into mm-hmm. the public Christian limelight in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, I started a fashion company, and a film company, and a tech company, and and um, I was doing really well and um, was happy with my my life. And mm-hmm. uh, and the only faith experience I had was Mosaic. I never obviously never stopped. Um, being a follower of christ and yeah. you know i was involved in our place but but i think it was i don't know if it was 2008 i was a catalyst i walked off stage and i told my son i'm done um, i'm i'm out of here you know and and i i'm not really like some people like love the limelight i, I i'm not really shaped for celebrity and um like i was just getting a cup of coffee before i came over here and someone runs into the place and you know is really exuberant and mm-hmm. you know because uh, they saw me running into the store and and um when I was writing before and doing things before um, I didn't know Christianity had celebrity like I didn't know that Christianity had like um like almost like a system of fame yeah. and importance and and uh, and I wasn't really ready for it, and I didn't like it and i um i I, I hated how honestly how mean Christians were. I didn't know that um, you could be evil, considered evil, if you had a different theological view or if you're asking questions. And, you know, yeah, you mentioned Rob Bell. It's like I probably got in more trouble because Rob thanked me in his books than anything I ever wrote myself. Really? <laughs> yeah. And uh, I remember once I, um, I affirmed uh, Greg Boyd's book. And, and next thing I know, people hate me for that. And, and I realized, in fact, I showed up one time at Greg Boyd's church. And he goes, why are you here? And I said, because I just want you to know somebody's for you. And uh, and I, I just really, I felt like Christianity didn't look a lot like Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I didn't grow up in church. I didn't grow up in faith. And it was, I'm a really idealistic person. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I just felt that I started feeling tormented by how can this be genuinely what Jesus died for. And I need to go figure out what this really looks like as yeah. a, as a movement and um you know because i mean i think i wrote years ago that the greatest enemy to the movement of jesus is christianity and um i i got attacked for a lot of things i didn't say i actually did say that and Mm. i still mean that and i think it's a problem but i i think it's a problem that evangelical christianity has more confidence in political power than it has in the power of the spirit Mm. i think um i think it's a problem that american christianity is seen as republican and um um, whether it was Republican or Democrat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it's a problem that we um, advocate character in political leaders, except when those political leaders advocate our political positions and then character doesn't matter. Um, I, I, I think in the weight of history, Christianity is going to be seen as an incredibly hypocritical mm-hmm. and corrupt religion. And, and I think it's an embarrassment to who Jesus is. And I know I shouldn't be saying this on a podcast, but it's, it's genuinely how I feel. And, and that became a problem for me because I actually believe in Jesus. I believe in the power and beauty of who he is. I believe in the movement he started 2,000 years ago. I believe in the authority of the scriptures. And I think that American Christianity has become syncretistic. Mm-hmm. You know, we can look at other religions and go, oh, wait a minute, you know, that's a, that's a combination of Christianity and, and voodoo. Or, you know, we can look at it and go, oh, wait a minute, you know, uh, in China, that's a combination of some ancient, you know, Buddhist um, belief systems and Christianity. But we are incapable of seeing that Christianity in America has become a syncretistic expression of capitalism, and uh, and Christianity.
0: Well, wow. so we we can see it over there. We can't see it here. No. How, how do we how do we learn to have eyes to see it here?
1: Well, one, um, you're going to have to have Christian leaders who care less about popularity and care more about truth. hmm And uh, and you know we. Um you know, we all want to belong. We all wanna, you know, be in, you know, have a sense of importance and mm-hmm. and uh and I cannot tell you how many times I've been at events and I felt like God was telling me to speak on a particular subject and I didn't want to and, and I think God's been really clear in my own heart that He didn't care if people liked me. He cared if I spoke what was true. And um I just think that we have to care less about being popular. Hmm. You know, and um yeah, I mean I, there there are a lot of issues that I think are really significant to our present crisis and with Mosaic I'm just trying to um to help create a community that is reflective of of who Jesus is and you know and I know it's imperfect and broken and because I'm imperfect and broken but we're going to keep keep at it.
0: Hmm there's so many questions after that I, I know, know we're not
1: talking about my book The Last Arrow but
0: but okay well, let's just keep talking about this at Mosaic how are you filtering <clears throat> so you're LA Hollywood is it Hollywood is that where the church
1: yeah. is looking Hollywood Boulevard can't be uh, yeah I drove by that.
0: it a couple uh, months ago I was oh yeah that's that's where Mosaic is it, so people like you have Texans in the Bible Belt looking at Hollywood and go oh well that's the worst place in the world because X Y and Z And there's an issue for syncretism there that isn't an issue here. Like, there's different type of syncretism that I think we're tempted with in Texas than in in L.A. How are you constantly filtering, okay, we we don't want to get lost into the temptations that are more prevalent here than elsewhere. Like, how how are you filtering through that? Because it'd be easy to, like, worship celebrity where you are since I see your Instagram feed. I mean, there are celebrities who are part of your church and part of your community.
1: You will almost never see a celebrity on my Instagram you'd be hard-pressed to see celebrity I, I,
0: okay well I looked and there was is you're doing a baptism for um the uh, forgive me if I not know Julie the Dancing with the Stars yeah I, I'm not saying you have all cel- that was not like an accusatory tone I was saying
1: no that- no I'm I'm saying that there are churches across America that seem to build themselves on celebrity and uh that's never been Mosaic I've been there I've been in LA 26 years mm-hmm. and Julianne would probably be the first person of any notoriety I've Ever even virtually put on anything, yeah. And that was only because uh, she was on our church's Instagram. Being ba- she just happened to be one of the people being baptized, hmm. and when I saw it on our church's one, I thought, okay, I can post that. Yeah, it just happened to be me baptizing her that day. It's a great picture, and uh, it's really beautiful, and um, and it's really and and ironically, I didn't really know. How um, popular she was, <laughs> and I, I don't watch Dancing with the Stars, so Uh-oh. so yeah, breaking news. It wasn't um, it wasn't something I'm aware of. I would say nine to ten times when someone um, really famous comes to our, our church, I'm completely unaware of it, hmm. and I find out later, or I don't even recognize them when I'm talking to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why, but God's giving me blinders. Like it's almost afterwards, somebody goes, "Yeah, you know a who grace, that was, yeah. right? and I go, "No." I don't know who that was, and they'll tell me, and I just laugh. And um, Yeah, the, the, the most famous people who have ever been to our church, no one has ever known. Yeah. And, and they'll sit in the middle, they'll sit in the back, they'll sit in the front, they'll sit where everybody else sits. And we haven't built our church on that. Mm-hmm. And um, our church is, like, I'm much, much more interested in creativity than I am in celebrity. Yeah. I'm more interested in artistry. You know than I am fame. And so I, I do want to... Our community really it does have a high value in the creative nature of every human being. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we, we really talk a lot about the difference between greatness and fame. Mm-hmm. And the greatness is what you do for others, but fame is what you do for yourself. And we just don't really focus mm-hmm. much on fame. But I think it's kind of funny because, like, a huge language in Christianity is the language of fame the God making God famous and um, and uh, and yet we, we don't really if we're supposed to be like God and God wants to be famous, why shouldn't we expect humans to want to be famous and uh, we never talk about well, I would say talking about God's fame is, is very rare at Mosaic and uh, we would talk about God's humility a lot more
0: Yeah, which I mean that's kind of like the Christ hymns like he gives all that up you uh, as a I know you wouldn't just identify yourself as a pastor, so I don't want to just say you're just a pastor, but more so than others who, who do what we do every Sunday, you've been able to lean into the creativity, the artistry of, of preaching, of like your work as uh, like a creator. How do, we, how do you help uh, other pastors be inspired to lean into their creativity instead of just thinking, okay, three points in a poem at the end? Like, What is the dispensation of the artist at, in, in the role of the pastorate?
1: Well, you're asking a question earlier, and I think it's connected to this. That, I mean, I think a huge part of it is that when when a movement becomes an institution, it elevates a different kind of leader. Okay. Like I remember years ago, I was in England and speaking on leadership, and one of the Brits, in almost like in a completely like broken tone, said, "Do our Americans just simply better leaders than mm-hmm. us British?" And I said, no, but America has a better culture for leadership than England hmm. because you had Winston Churchill, but you didn't want him, but you needed him. But your culture wants Chamberlain. You, you, you're the culture that created Jefferson and Washington and Adams. Our best leaders came out of a British culture, but it was the American culture that gave them the opportunity to show their greatness. I mean, history will probably describe Jefferson and Washington and, you know, and Franklin and Adams as some of the most brilliant, greatest leaders in modern history. And they'll be identified as American leaders. But really, in truth, they're the products of, yeah. of British culture. And I, I think the reality is that, um, and you can see this even in churches. A lot of times, like a church that will grow really large when, the, when that founding pastor leaves, he replaces himself with a really administrative, organizational leader mm-hmm. because he doesn't want an entrepreneur who will change his vision. And what you have in Christianity is that Christianity in America has moved from a movement to institution. So our seminaries train people to be MBAs, but from a theological perspective. They become administrators and managers. They're not entrepreneurs. They're not catalysts. And so our movement elevates people who are high on authority, structure, Predictability, security, safety, and that's who leads the church, which is why we only lead people to Christ who are looking for security and safety. It's not the power of the gospel, it's the power of our culture that defines who we reach. And I mean, years ago, I I prayed and I said, God, you know, are you sure you want me to do this? Because I'm not really crafted um, to be a pastor. And I felt like God was so clear. He said, if I wanted to reach the same kind of people, I would keep calling the same kind of leaders. And the only way I'm going to reach other kinds of people is to call out other kind of leaders. And, and I feel like a part of Mosaic Stewardship is to call out different kinds of leaders, to call out high creators and innovators and entrepreneurs and, and, um, and artisans to lead the church because they become, in a sense, the portal for a whole different aspect of culture to come to Jesus. I, I literally opened my mouth. That was,
0: we convert people to, who want safety and order because that's the kind of leaders we've raised up in church. Absolutely. Wow. That makes 100% sense to me. Yeah,
1: yeah, and that's why Mosaic is filled with high creatives and artisans and entrepreneurs and innovators and and uh, pioneers because that's the culture that we have.
0: Wow. What if people are in that system and they realize, oh, this is curtailing some of the expression of my humanity. And I don't want to do that anymore. Do you think you have to step outside or can you
1: change the institution? I mean, obviously well, I think it's why, you know, hundreds of thousands of people around the world follow Mosaic is because they can't find a church or mm-hmm. an expression of faith that matches who they actually are. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I've traveled the world and the recurring theme is I gave up on God. I gave up on faith. I gave up on Christianity. But when we heard your podcast, when we connected the Mosaic, we thought, oh, there's room for me. My belief, mm. there's room for my faith. I, and, um, and, and I think that's a part of our stewardship is um, the church is losing all of its innovators. It's losing all of its entrepreneurs. It's losing all of its um, culture creators because of the way the church does church. And, uh, and it's not theological. But, you know, how do you attack a church for reaching people you don't reach? I mean, two years ago on Easter we did a survey, and, and we're not you know we're not a huge church in Texas standards or anything like that you know and um but uh, we did a survey and I and I said if you're an atheist this is Easter in in the building if you're an atheist and you would say I'm an atheist but if God were out there I wanted him to find me uh, would you just uh, we had these lights that would you just turn on your light we had over a thousand people say I'm an atheist. But if God were out there, I wanted to find me. We, knew, we know we, have, we had at least a 1,000 atheists in the room, but we had more than that. But some of the atheists were not open. Wow, that's and, beautiful. And that's a part of our culture. I mean, I think the same day I, I baptized Julianne, I also baptized a woman who uh, is from the family of the Shah of Iran and uh, is a Muslim, um, came from Iran, and had just come to Mosaic three weeks before, had never heard anything about Jesus she came to my book signing for the last era was the first person in line and I looked at her and I said have you had a life changing encounter with Jesus yet and she said not yet and uh, and she goes but I'm looking forward to it oh, and, uh, and I said well you and Jesus are going to meet soon and she goes oh that would be wonderful she goes is there any book that's been written that I could read to learn more about who he is she didn't even know the Bible was that and she goes I don't know anything about Jesus and so I said not only is there a book but you know, some of our community would be happy to take you to dinner and talk to you about who Jesus is and help you understand. She goes, really, somebody would do that for me. And within three weeks, she had given her life to Christ and was baptized. And and I remember the, the morning that we baptized her, because we baptized outside, right on Hollywood Boulevard. And I had a guy come up to me and he said, I was baptized a year ago. I was a Buddhist. And, you know, and wow. and that's the difference is that Mosaic has had people who are Zoroastrian come to faith. Um. I remember one person in Christ, he was from the religion that were descendants of John the Baptist. Uh, and it's just an incredibly different kind of experience when you know the room is full of atheists and agnostics and Buddhists and Muslims. And we've had so many Muslims come to faith at Mosaic. It's, it's been incredible. and um, But our church became the epicenter for the Muslim refugees coming in from Syria. And we purposefully became the the... The flagship for Los Angeles. And so people know that a Christian church has been the leaders of embracing the Islamic community, who are refugees coming into our city. And they've been in our home, they've stayed with us, you know, and we helped resettle them, we helped them get jobs. And um, it's been a really beautiful thing. And I think that a part of the problem with the church is that our churches are designed just for people who already believe. And Jesus never designed anything for people who already believed.
0: Wow. Okay, we're out of time. I want to talk to you about your trip to Syria, which is not going to happen. I want to talk to you about how to s- set fire to your past, which is not going to happen. I had a discussion I want to do about being average, which is not going to happen because we're out of time. But what I do want you to close is <clears throat> you'd written your book and then you find out that you have cancer. Mm-hmm. And so you're doing the last edits. And so that's your the intro to the book. You, you referenced that. Um, I know at least one person is listening to this podcast while she's, getting chemo, what is your word of encouragement to someone who just cut her hair off and she's going through chemo, what would you say?
1: Uh, well, first of all, I don't know if you can say something that feels so impersonal, to someone who's going through something so personal. Mm. And because the, the thing that she would need more than anyone is, is a human being up close and personal in her life, that would be more powerful than anything I could say you know, and embrace is a lot more yeah. powerful than, than uh, counsel, you know. Um, yeah, I would just say feel what you need to feel. Don't let other people tell you what you should be feeling or how you should be going through it. Whatever you feel is human. And um, the reason that you're afraid to die, if you're afraid to die, is because you love life. And there are people that you love and things that you love, and you don't want to leave them behind. And um, we're much more secure in what we have than what uh, we hope for. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's so much easier to believe in what you can see than what you can't see, and 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 that that's actually the the transcendent thing about faith is that faith shifts you from having confidence in what you have to what you hope for, it shifts you from having assurance in what um, you see to what is unseen. And so I just say, if you're going through chemo, one, I'm so sorry that you're having to go through that. Um, and, I and you know, people always ask me, you know, how can God allow suffering in the world? And, and I go, the truth is, with or without God, there's suffering in the world. And so the real question is, do you want to go through that suffering alone? Or mm. do you want a God who loves you um, completely to go through it with you? And, um, you know, I went, I mean, I had cancer, and I'm cancer-free now, but I didn't know how it was going to go. I had a high volume of cancer, as my surgeon told me this week. And, and I really had to deal with the reality of, of imminent death. And um, you know what was amazing for me was, I've lived a really full life. I, I, I've overwhelmingly lived a life without regret. I have regrets, but every time I lived with regret was because I lived a life of obligation rather than a life of intention. And so I would just say, however many days you have in, to live this life, stop living out of obligation. Mm. don't live a life because of what other people say or other people think or other people want of you break free of that mm. that would be my most important message and that's why I wrote The Last Arrow and I mean I turned 60 years old this year and like, my wife she's always concerned about whether people think about me and what other people say and I'm like how old do you have to be to stop living in the shackles of other people's expectations like you know I mean I'm wearing two different shoes you know that don't even that, that's a, a, true a, And, you know, I just, like, why do you do them? I was like, why do you do that? And I go, because I just don't want to accept any boundaries that are absurd that that demand that we conform to each other's patterns. Like, uh, I have one purpose, I think, to live right now is to uh, be fully alive, to set other people free so they can live fully alive.
0: Mm. That's good. Thank you for the time. I've got to get you on stage right now. Otherwise, I'd keep talking to you for about an hour. Okay. So, this has <laughs> been great. Been with you, yeah.
1: Hey, God bless.
0: Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Noresworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.